This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 24th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm joined by Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. And this week, we also have with us Alan Brandt, who's the Amelie Moses Cass Professor of the History of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Professor of the History of Science in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. He's a Bancroft Prize winner and a member of the National Academy of Medicine. And he's uniquely qualified to put the current epidemic of COVID-19 in historical context. But first, this week we published three letters that show us how high rates of vaccination within institutions can affect COVID-19 rates. What did we learn here? Steve, these are three letters describing the experience at healthcare centers. There are three different healthcare centers that looked at what happened when their vaccination rates rose fairly high. The first one was Hebrew University in Israel, which used the BNT162B2 vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, exclusively. And over eight weeks' time, had about 85% of their employees vaccinated. A second study comes from UT Southwestern, which is a large medical system with more than 23,000 employees. They started vaccinating in mid-December and following that, followed the number of cases that developed. And finally, there was a group from UCLA and UCSD, again, another large group, 37,000 employees, and about 77% of their employees had received a second dose of vaccine over the course of the time that they looked. And to summarize all of the findings without too many numbers, all of these groups saw about a tenfold drop in the number of COVID-19 cases that they diagnosed. Now, these were a little bit different from each other because in the case of UCLA and UCSD, they were doing active surveillance. So they were swabbing everyone a couple times a week. So that number represents both symptomatic and asymptomatic cases. So these are pretty strong numbers. I mean, there are a lot of caveats. Um, these are uncontrolled studies, but these are consistent with the other experiences that people are having. It does look as if the vaccine efficacy is similar under real world conditions to what we saw in the controlled trials. Absolutely, Eric. I think that these data are very encouraging, both for what we see in terms of symptomatic illness post-vaccination, as well as nasal carriage of SARS-CoV-2 which suggests that vaccination may also substantially impact transmission, although that was not directly studied. However, as you said, there are many caveats. And one of the key caveats is which viruses were circulating when. And so as different viral variants emerge and move around the world, we're going to have to pay attention to the impact they may or may not have on vaccinated individuals. One thing I point out, Lindsay, is that the vaccines are something on the order of 90 or 95 percent effective in controlled trials under perfect conditions. We don't know precisely how that will hold up as new variants come around, as you say. But it's important to remember they're not 100 percent effective. So there will be cases. And that's what we're seeing here. And we expect to see some cases. We hope that there is considerably less severe disease and considerably fewer deaths, but we'll see what happens. One other study we published this week looked at a different aspect of vaccines, whether people who had previously been infected with SARS-CoV-2 had a more pronounced immune response to the vaccine than those who had not been previously infected. What did those investigators find? Well, for most of the vaccines that we're looking at right now, they're given as two doses. And the reason they're given as two doses is that we know that an individual who sees an antigen for the second time 
has a markedly increased immune response to that antigen. But if you've seen that antigen before by having been infected, do you see a boost in the response to the first dose of vaccine as if you'd already gotten your prime from the initial disease? This was looked at among healthcare workers at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. The investigators compared antibody responses measured in several assays. It's a little bit complicated but compared those with documented infections at least a month or two prior with those who had no evidence of infection. And they looked at all of these in vitro assays and saw that there were much higher antibody responses in those who had been previously infected as compared with those who had never been infected. This suggests that pre-existing immunity might benefit those who have previously been infected as they have a very rapid response to vaccination. Of course, again, caveats to this, and they're the same caveats we've talked about on the podcast several times before. We don't know if specific antibody levels correlate with protection, and we don't actually even know that antibody is the protective response. Still, those with a history of infection might have a particular benefit from vaccination. Eric, as you say, this makes a lot of sense. Initial priming, be it by first vaccination or natural infection, stands to reason will then be boosted by a second exposure to the antigen. So these data make sense from our preconceived notions and understanding of immune response. However, we need more empiric data to really understand how initial natural infection primes the immune system. We have to remember as well that wild type infection has many more antigens than just the spike protein. And therefore, what are the implications for the nature of the priming and how the boost superimposed on a broad-based prime enhances the immune response? Obviously, it's selective for the spike protein, which is in the vaccine, but it is a much more complicated analysis needed to really understand wild-type infection followed by vaccine boosting versus two focused vaccinations. It's certainly not time to abandon a second shot for those who've been previously infected. We certainly don't know enough to do that. But on the other hand, we also have seen that it's likely that vaccination produces a better protective response than previous infections. So it remains very important for those with a history of infection to receive the vaccine. When you say receive the vaccine, I assume you meant the full immunization series that has been studied. Absolutely. People should receive the full vaccine course, whether or not they've been infected before. Pandemics don't occur in a vacuum. The social and political environment that's present at the time of the pandemic helped to shape the outbreak and attitudes toward it as much as the disease itself. So turning to Alan, how does the current setting compare with that of pandemics that have occurred in the past? Well, I would say there are certain general characteristics of pandemics that historians have studied over hundreds and thousands of years. And obviously, you know, new forms of sickness and death, speculation on what caused it, panic and anxiety, who to think about might be responsible, how to organize societies to respond to pandemics. But the thing that I think most historians really emphasize is that a pandemic comes into any society with very specific contextual characteristics. How's the society organized? 
what are its values and principles, what's the characteristics of its scientific and medical understanding, what kinds of public health institutions and hospitals does it have? And so as I've been watching the emergence of COVID-19 over this last year, a little bit more now, I think we see a lot of these aspects of our contemporary societies, our contemporary politics and culture, all of which have been dramatically impacted by this incredibly powerful pandemic. And we've seen it not just here in the United States, but COVID has been just about everywhere in the world. And so we've had a chance to see how different societies, institutions, cultures respond. And I think people will look back at COVID-19 and see some of the most dramatic aspects of our scientific capabilities, but also just how poorly we were prepared as a nation and a society to respond effectively to it. So I've begun to see some of the threads that I think historians will really look at. And on the one hand, they will emphasize, as you all were talking about, the impact of vaccines developed in a remarkably short period of time, as well as many failures and problems in the response here in the U.S., but also around the world. Do you think that things that we've learned from previous pandemics have helped shape the decision making and the responses that we made to this one? Well, I'm tending to think right now that we didn't take adequate advantage of what we learned in the 20th century and even in the first years of the 21st century to be appropriately prepared for this pandemic. And, you know, there was data from Johns Hopkins predicting that the United States was the best prepared country in the world to respond to a massive pandemic. And it shows how poorly we predict the future. But there were so many signs, really, at least since HIV and going back before that to influenza, um, even going back to the 50s to the polio epidemics, that would have suggested that we really needed to think much more critically about the future of infectious diseases, especially those that could be so effectively spread as the coronavirus in this case. And I think, you know, as a historian, I was very aware of the failures to invest in public health really throughout the 20th century. And by the 1980s and 1990s, the Institute of Medicine had issued a series of reports about the failing infrastructure of the public health system in the United States. And for example, we have seen that the idea of having 50 different units are states and within the states, sometimes hundreds of local public health units is really a very poor structure for how to respond to a mass pandemic. And we have failed over and over again to invest in those structures. And then in the face of a biological epidemic challenge like COVID, 
we've seen how complex and how different and, you know, in a sense, we've had 50 different responses to COVID. And for a historian watching this, the warning bells were going off. First, of course, HIV, where our initial response was just incredibly problematic, disgraceful. And then with the subsequent often zoonotic diseases that occurred by the early 21st century, H1N1, Ebola, SARS. And so in many ways, all the warnings were there. So, you know, one of the things we hear is that this is a once in a hundred year pandemic, but I really don't like using that language because what it suggests and what I fear as we look ahead is it says, don't make the investments because we won't have to deal with this for a hundred years and by then things will be different. And the reality is that that kind of view, something like this happens only once every hundred years, doesn't really reveal some of the major ecological, environmental risks that are quite characteristic of our current globalized moment where people live very densely in urban areas around the world. And we're at high risk for these kinds of biological phenomena. So I think history could have provided us with more insight, but at the same time, you know, one possibility is that we will leave COVID-19 Perhaps it will become a seasonal or a much less prevalent infection. And we won't make the kinds of investments in human health in addressing so many of the inequities that COVID has exposed. So I think, you know, reflecting on this with a deeper set of historical sensibilities can really be helpful for not just thinking about the past and COVID will teach us a lot about the way we live now, but thinking about the fundamental changes that will need to occur to really be prepared for pandemics like this. This is kind of an unfair question, but you talked a lot about the U.S. response and the 50 different responses of the 50 different states, but we share for the most part of history across the country. If when you look at other countries, And I'd say that a lot of the differences are differences in leadership rather than just historical context, because, again, we share so much. But when you look at other countries, would you focus on leadership as being the thing that changed the responses? Or was there a unique historical context in each country which helped determine the direction that they took? It's a really great question. And one of the strategies that historians have used is taking the same epidemic and then watching what happens in different places, because that's a strategy for understanding the similarities and differences among countries, between cities or different polities. One of the most important works in the history of medicine was by a historian, Charles Rosenberg, who studied three different epidemics of cholera in New York City in three different decades. And what he found was each time the response was quite different. Leadership is important and it's been crucial as we know here in the United States and failures of leadership 
are one of those contingent aspects of how pandemics actually occur and we respond to them. But I think deeper social divisions, you know, one of the things that makes pandemics so fascinating to historians, and I think now all of us know this, is they touch every aspect of our lives. So in many ways, we do share very broad communications, technologies, obviously globalization is a fundamental aspect of pandemics. But I think historians will wanna look very closely at this now. Even for example, within the EU countries, there have been differences in response. And you know, while I think there have been problematic responses around the world, I would look to the United States for identifying some of the most fundamental failures. And it is striking that in a place where we have such remarkable science, such fantastic hospitals, so much of the academic and industrial structures are located here, we had such a haphazard, chaotic, and often totally inadequate response to the pandemic. And this is where I would say our contemporary politics really shaped the biological outcome of a pandemic. And some of these things have been more deeply embedded in the last 20, 30 years, the decline in the authority of science and science denial has fundamentally shaped this pandemic in ways that then are exposed in its mortality and its morbidity. So if we'd had stronger leadership that encouraged a more scientific notion, we might've done much better here if we had invested in certain social institutions, we would have done much better here. I think we'll learn a lot. You know, People are gonna be studying COVID-19 for a very long time. And I think there will be additional insights, but I've sort of been thinking recently that preparedness really means that what we've really learned is that people who were healthier did better. And what we really have to think about are some of the fundamental health disparities based on racism and social division that really could make us all healthier going forward. And that's in many ways the best form of preparedness. Alan, you point out the dance between science and politics. Is there a way to keep them separate or will science always be subsumed by the political culture? You know, we have had this sort of new mantra, follow the science. And obviously that's what I would do, follow the science. But it sometimes presumes that science is a lot clearer than it is in the midst of a pandemic. And I think that all pandemics are political. And that doesn't mean that there can't be robust and authoritative science. But at the same time, as I watched this pandemic emerge, we really knew there would be fundamental conflicts about economics, about closing down businesses, about social isolation, about what we've referred to as lockdowns. And public health 
science and medicine have fundamental political aspects. So the real question can't be, can we just separate them and follow the science and forget about politics? But there are sort of political strategies that can authorize science. And I think that was one of the major failures here. And of course, we're living in a communications environment where it's very difficult to communicate clearly and effectively to a unified population. And so there's been so much, not just misinformation, but disinformation, fundamental misunderstandings. And so when there are genuine scientific uncertainties or debates, they become enmeshed in much more difficult issues of where we get our information, how we get it, than I would say any pandemic in the past. So in a way, this pandemic represents this current moment, but in ways that I think we can be informed by both looking to the past and looking ahead. When I first became a historian of medicine, I thought epidemics are fascinating because they tell us so much about past societies. But one of the things I have found is that studying past epidemics and observing closely a current epidemic can tell us some things about how we might reform and rethink and be ready for pandemics looking ahead. So I do like to think that history of medicine has its purpose for understanding the past, but it can also illuminate the present and also give us some important insights into how we might think about the future. So looking at precisely that point, pandemics obviously result in massive social and economic disruptions. How in the past have those disruptions helped shape the society that followed? And what's that going to mean for us going forward? I've been thinking a lot about this, you know, what does the future look like in an age after this most intensive phase of the pandemic? And starting close to medicine, one might say, it's hard for me to imagine being in an emergency department in the hospital where everyone is not masked. And in fact, it's hard for me to imagine being in a hospital where masks aren't required. And it won't be that when COVID is no longer a major risk in hospitals, that that will change. And I've thought about back to HIV about universal blood precautions. Universal blood precautions should have been enacted long before HIV, but HIV was an instigator for something that has protected many people, especially health providers, from serious infectious diseases. If my dentist started to work on me right now without gloves, you know, dentists weren't gloved for the most part before HIV. So I think we'll see those kinds of changes, but much more profound changes as well. I've been talking to architects and city planners. Um, it's been quite remarkable in the course of COVID because hand washing, ventilation, you know, we're not going to be shaking hands and hugging the way we were before COVID. And I think there will be very profound changes. They're hard to predict. And some of them could be 
very much for the good if we reform our public health systems and our access to the best quality care for everyone. But there also is the potential post a pandemic to want it to be gone. And I think we're seeing that right now in the contemporary culture. And in a way that would put us in a position where we could miss some of the most important insights and opportunities that the pandemic has presented. Many people look back to the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1920, and it's often referred to as the forgotten epidemic. And I think after the death and loss is that rather than really reflecting on that, one can see societies get into a culture of denial. That was then, you know, now we go on. And it takes both attention, serious investment and reflection to really cull what we can learn from a pandemic and how we might change afterwards. And so I think we're sort of on the cusp of some of those issues right now. And what we know is that, you know, changing infrastructure in this instance, medical and public health infrastructure is very difficult. And we rely on some of the historical legacies. Well, this is the way it's organized and this is how we do it. And so it's very hard to make some of the fundamental structural changes that a pandemic would suggest. And so I think the debate looking ahead is, do we say this was terrible and tragic, but remain much in the conventions that we have? Or are we able to really utilize our terrible experience of this recent year, and quite frankly, the immediate years ahead, to really think about what some of the more radical reforms in our approaches. It's very difficult, for example, I've been following the allocation of vaccines globally. And, you know, just going over sort of who's involved in that, obviously it's WHO, the more wealthy nations procuring vaccine. There's a new organization, COVAX, that's distributing vaccines, but all of our global institutions are relatively weak and very chaotic in many ways. And that would be a key issue to look at. Why is the WHO relatively weak when it comes to the kind of international, supranational planning and authority that would really be required to address pandemics? And nationalism and national political and economic interests all resist this. So there's a lot to consider as we think about the future. But I do think, at least in the immediate period, there will be a set of idiosyncratic kinds of changes. And epidemics begin suddenly, and they never end clearly. I was looking at some data recently. We don't think about HIV as a pandemic anymore, but it affects millions. There are 40 million people living with HIV right now, and probably only about half of them know they have the infection. And of the people who know they have the infection, only about half are being treated now. 
So how we change these kind of broad global phenomenon of health and disease is a really big question. I have had the advantage, you know, I'm at 60,000 feet kind of watching this and I have enormous admiration and respect for people who have worked on the day-to-day problems of COVID-19. But in order to do better, it will require fundamental changes. Let me ask you about something you just brought up, because one of the things that pandemics really illustrate is the global nature of an infectious disease and how they don't stay within one country. Uh, What happens in your neighbors really matters to you. The WHO, as you said, is a consensus-driven organization. It's not designed to respond to emergencies particularly well. It's not really been given the tools. This was true for Ebola. This is certainly true now. But HIV was, to the extent that international disease control has occurred, it's largely been bilateral. It's largely been the U.S. funding PEPFAR in many countries that has brought drugs to a lot of countries. Do you see either a completely revised WHO or some international organization that might arise out of all of this? You know, certainly we've had the League of Nations and such arise out of previous disasters. Do you think it's possible that something might happen that either empowers a WHO or creates a similar sort of organization? I do think it's possible. And I do think we need to try to imagine what would really be required in a highly globalized world where the exchange is not just economic, but it's the exchange of microbes and vulnerabilities and risks. And I think one of the things we're seeing in the early 21st century is that so many of the most essential, as many have said, existential problems really don't conform to the authority of the nation state. And so here's where I would really connect what's happened with the COVID pandemic to the larger environmental, climate, planetary challenges that we face. And if we maintain a sort of national approach to global problems, I think we'll see failures similar to the ones that we've just seen. So what that really will require is going far beyond a bilateral approach, but a notion of nations united, knowing that their interests really are incumbent upon collaboration around these kinds of threats. And that's a very different model. And, you know, again, historically, the legacies are of nation states having authority, and they will continue to act in those ways. But can nations give up an aspect of authority to a global notion, to a supranational notion? And I think that's the way to ultimately address the climate crisis. No single country can do it. So we see some elements of that, you know, the Paris Accords or various kinds of treaties. Um, I've studied tobacco control and the framework convention for tobacco control was an institutional attempt to recognize that no single nation could succeed in the control of tobacco with a globalized industry 
that would simply move the threat to the less well-regulated world. And so I think there are aspects where people are thinking this way, but maybe an episode like COVID can, rather than weaken the World Health Organization, lead to a conviction, especially among democratic nations around the world to reinvigorate some of these collaborative and consortia-like programs. But right now, if you look at the vaccine debate about COVID, you see how poorly organized we are to really get the world vaccinated. And I think that that exposes these kinds of things that often aren't adequately legible or seen by many. And that's one aspect of pandemics is they sort of throw the high intensity lights on the failures and the problems and the structural impediments to having a healthier world. I mean, Alan, I love the way you frame how we can think about big change. And we can think about big change from large global world order or we can think of big change through individual behavior. And your long view on HIV and how we change blood safety, where through that individual testing changed a whole industry and not only locally, but everywhere. It's a collective standard. And I reflect on your comments of masking and how we think about respiratory virus transmission. You know, the casualties of blood banking was hepatitis B and non-A, non-B, which we now call C, and the casualties with the other viruses or bloodborne pathogens, which was a welcome result uh, from HIV control and advance. I wonder with COVID and masking and respiratory viruses, how do we support or enable, and I will continue to believe in following the science, but how do we support and enable the science that then informs the policy in a welcome way so that we have changes like blood banking to the control of COVID and respiratory viruses? Well, I think this is a critical element and leadership is crucial here because who is advising what kinds of policies we're tracking is really important. You know, I've talked to many people working in the COVID field and scientists, epidemiologists, modelers. And when I asked them what surprised them most about this last year, it was often, you know, sort of focused on masking, the debate about masking, you know, a kind of no risk intervention that was resisted so aggressively and was politicized so vocally. And, you know, that will be a lasting aspect of our understanding of the COVID pandemic. But as you say, there are other things that we learn. You know, what I'm understanding right now is that this has been a very unusual season for flu, and that there has been much less flu this year than would generally be the case because of isolation and probably especially masking. And so I do think that there will be changes and we can get farther 
upstream, as people say, trying to discover a vaccine and get it distributed in the face of a massive global pandemic is an enormous challenge. And I think that's one of the great stories of this last year, and it will spare us untold suffering and death now and in these next years. But there's so many things we could do to not get us into this kind of crisis. And so I tend to think a more self-conscious look back at what are the things we can do together, often that might be less politically divisive, will be one of my hopes. But I think science is crucial to this. And, you know, I think how do we create a culture where science has authority? And that's one of the problems that we're facing. Thank you very much, Alan, for joining us today. And thank you to Eric and Lindsay.